Hello and welcome back to Kyle's Internal Monologue. Uh, in this episode, we're going to be discussing the uh, short story in the Sword of Destiny collection, A Little Sacrifice. And once again, I am joined by my wonderful friend, Joshi Rapier. Hello again. Uh, so this short story is uh, probably, outside of the lesser evil, probably one of the more famous ones. Uh, whenever people get into the books, you always see a post on like Reddit or Twitter or whatever of someone going, this short story made me cry. Um, and for good reason. Uh, mm. There's some people who don't like it, like Claudia, which, you know... Fine, but uh, for me, it is a, an emotional roller coaster, and it happened to be a short story that was tackling some situations that were very personal and very prescient to when I first discovered these books. Um, so I uh, talked about the short story before to you. You'd only watched the TV show, and mm -hmm. I said, I, uh, I think this one will glom on to you because it it's very emotional dandelion's a major player in it um and it, it to me it's more true to what i view as the witcher a, a more emotional more somber tone uh than what the show offered and i gave you a little snippet of the short story and you uh seemed interested and you picked up the books um pretty much only a few weeks after that so um, what about this short story draws you to it, and why did this short story in particular make you want to pick up the books? Yeah, it's nice you brought it up, because I was going to mention, I believe it was Ju July last year, uh, we were mm -hmm. talking about Yaskier, I was saying, oh, he's my favorite character in the show, and we started talking about the differences between the book and the Netflix version, and you gave me this wonderful example with that excerpt of the ending of A Little Sacrifice, and as mm -hmm. you say, that's kind of what got me very interested into it and uh because i love the way the descriptions were done it sounded very melancholy which i'm a i'm a massive sucker for <laughs> so when a few weeks later you asked me about this podcast i was like yeah absolutely i'll jump right in because this excerpt gave me a lot of confidence that i would have fun with this series uh as well as everything else you were saying about it so i knew those i knew i was in for a fun interesting time and i was certainly <laughs> proven right um, I, I, I'm glad that it worked. Like, uh, like I, I had no expectation that you were going to actually start reading them. Uh, I just wanted to just point out, hey, hey, Yaskier is, uh, there, there's a lot more there beyond comedic relief. Comedic relief is certainly part of his character, mm. but there is something underneath there that I, the show do doesn't really take the time to show, which, you know, fine. You know, it's their, it's their story at this point. I can't really complain much anymore because i'm I'm just trying to forget that show existed uh so um and i and i posted that deal because i was like this to me uh sort of symbolizes the tone i would go for if i was to uh, uh adapt uh the witcher it's much more melancholy it's much more somber in tone uh and there's certainly moments of levity but there mm. is uh there is bits in this story where the contrast between the high fantasy romp and the deeply emotional human side connect in fascinating ways. This being an adaptation of The Little Mermaid uh, and uh, how that uh, coincides with a very, very heartfelt look at unrequited love uh, and uh, this this short story came to me when I was going through my own sort of problems. I got into The Witcher. Uh, I had a lot of stuff on my plate at the time, uh, one of which was my romance life had taken a nosedive into hell. Uh, and uh, reading this story, I was Essie. Uh, and it it hurt to read it. Uh, and I think that's a good thing. It, you know, it, it helped me deal with that turmoil, deal with those problems uh, in a way that I wasn't willing to deal with before I read it. Uh, and so I'm glad it got you into it. Uh, it, it made you want to pick up the books because uh, th this kind of emotional uh, sort of realism, along with like when we were talking Shard of Ice, is what is the main crux of what i feel is missing from the show is that it doesn't want to take the time to really 
deal with these emotions that the books do. Um, and so I'm just really glad that this got you into it. Uh, it sucks that I, my putting that I spoiled that Essie dies, but, uh, uh, cause, uh, believe me, reading it without that, oh boy, it hits you. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, even then it was still such a bittersweet ending with that massive gut punching twist at the end. You know, I still, I knew it was coming, but even then it just, at that point I was so invested in the character as you say, this is something so relatable about the unrequited love to such a painful, um, poetic degree. Mm-hmm. And the way it's described about Dandelion being there for her, burying her, and the, the beloved Pearl, it's beautiful stuff. It really adds so much more. Uh, it doesn't go much into what D- Dandelion's thinking at the time, but you can just imagine him being there. Like, he's such this playful pompous Mm -hmm. fun character that just imagine him in this situation is heartbreaking without him having to say a single word Mm -hmm. about how he's feeling about it and as you say it's really i find it a damn shame that the netflix series won't go into this kind of stuff i mean Mm -hmm. if we're lucky maybe series three series four we'll get something like this but at that point i think they had a chance to make yaskir that that more complex deeper character and that's what i thought they were going with in that direction like the first time we see him in episode four of the series we see him helping smuggling elves uh he shows great remorse for everything they're going through and i thought that was a brilliant character choice in a way it felt like he was making up for all the the bullshit lies he spread the first time he met them in the series you know the Mm -hmm. iconic song that's stuck in everyone everyone's (laughs) heads But then, as the series progressed, uh, despite having this great dynamic with Yennefer, he just resorted back to being that jokey character who interrupted, you know, a lot of d- tense scenes with Bathos. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, he there are two scenes with his with ways with Siri, and you're hoping they'll have some interactions. But it, each time, he just gets played off as a joke that she ignores him. And I'm like, no, I want them to talk. I want him to yeah. be like the, the fun uncle to her. Because she does call him uncle in the books, by the way. And I'm looking forward to that. And I hope this series... Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and speaking to my point about, uh, I think in Edge of the World, I mentioned it, uh, that he puts on airs of being this womanizing, comedic sort of, you know, person but underneath there is a person who sees the world hurting and is trying with his art with his poetry to heal those wounds the best he can the only way he knows how uh and i think we see that uh especially at that end there, there's this little line that says uh you know he he would uh he would never sing this ballad to anyone because the ballad would never move anyone so he would tell a different story uh, and if you think about it, well, the the ballad would certainly move people because we know the story and it moves us. The thing is, is that the world needs a little bit less tragedy and a little bit more romance. The world mm-hmm. needs hope. It needs healing. And so he makes a new version of this story, one that will help. Uh, and he tells the true story to no one. Uh, and, uh, just that little section, there's so much more you can dive into him, uh, both in later and in this story, but just in that little short scene, there's so much about him that just comes through, uh, in ways that is more than comedic relief. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and the character of Essie, like, I love Essie, she's a wonderful character, she offers so mm-hmm. much more depth through her interactions with Geralt and Yaska, who's like, you know, we find out they're like... Uh, they have a brother and sister dynamic, and in a way, they're kind of rivals to each other, but it's very playful. Mm-hmm. They do a lot of duets together, um, and it's it's very sweet. And by the end, you kind of wish you kind of wish those three would stay together when they're that campfire scene, when they're having that lovely time together. You're like, you know, you know that the next day they're going to set out on their own separate paths, take their own roads, look to look mm-hmm. for something that, in a way, they already have together. Uh, and it's a beautiful scene, but you you understand why it couldn't be, why they couldn't be a permanent fixture, because as you said, have you said in the past, the the whole series revolves around Geralt and Yennefer, and Essie mm-hmm. offers Geralt a fantastic perspective on his own relationship, and it's pretty mm-hmm. fantastic that the author can do that. They can offer 
a new side of the relationship with one half of that said relationship being totally absent from it. Um, mm-hmm. But you know that, you know, Yennefer is still on Geralt's mind. Like when he's facing death, he, he thinks about her. When he feels great pity for Essie's unrequited love for him, he's like, if this is how Yennefer sees me, then I'll never resent her again. Mm-hmm. And that's, it's raw stuff. And it's, it's fantastic. Yeah. The, the line that sticks with me is that, is that bit where uh, she's cuddling up to him and he goes, you know, she smells like Verbena, not lilac and gooseberries. Mm. Her eyes are a calm and, uh, and joyful blue. They don't blaze with cold, calculating, a deep violet. You know, Essie was not Yennefer, and that was her one and only sin, uh, mm. is that she can't replace that love, and he can't feel that love to anyone else. And it, 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 you know, to go along with the themes of Shard of Ice, you know, he didn't want to say I love you. He didn't know how to say it, didn't know uh, if it could mean anything if he said it. Uh, and he hid behind his stupid comfort blanket of being a witcher to to not say it. And then here, he is put on the other side. Mm. And he goes, oh, this is what I do. This is what I did to her. And there's just this uh, sense of understanding and coming to terms with who he is and understanding that uh, as much as he loves to run away from his problems, that he can't, and that he mm. has to own up to something eventually, which really comes to a head in something more, as you were saying, when at first he thinks Yen is dead, uh, and he just collapses on the hill, and he just doesn't, you know, he's like, you, you had to take everything away from me when he's talking to death, you know? Uh, he just... He realized through his own fault he caused his own losses. Uh, and this is the short story where he's really blatantly called out on that. Mm. Yeah, I love those interactions between Dandelion and Essie just dragging his ass down to reality, just having <laughs> blunt, honest sincerity about, um, hey, stop acting this way. You know, you're, you're, you flaunt your otherness, but you're just like us, really. Mm-hmm. And that's a lovely thing. Yeah. I, I want to get your view on love at first sight is a contentious point for a lot of people. Some people believe in it. Some people do not. Uh, and this short story, um, you know, Essie instantly falls for Geralt. And Geralt is trying to do everything he can to appease her, but he just can't feel the same way. And so we see both sides of the coin of love at first sight and love at, uh, love that is developed over time. Um, I wanted to get your view on that, um, just uh, because that was something that Claudia pointed out, is that she doesn't believe in love at first sight, so she found this short story childish. I don't agree with her. Um, and so I wanted to get your view on that and how that works in that dynamic. On paper, I believe love at first sight does sound trite. You know, we often see that in fairy tales. And as Claudia says, it's childish there. Like, oh, why would this prince instantly fall in love with this person he met in a tower and yada yada. But it can be different in real life. And in stories like this, where there's actual more depth added to it, it can be a strong thing. Um, I'm going to risk going into a personal territory. You know, I saw someone and I, I felt for her instantly and it took time. I got to know her and we had a connection. We dated. I was deeply fond of her and, and it ended. And you're like, mm-hmm. oh, was I wrong to follow that blind avenue? I guess, I guess you could say, oh, it's very... It's very complicated, and some yeah. things can sound, sound trite when you view it from a perspective, but when you're actually in it, it's like, oh, this is, I've, I understand now, it's hard to articulate to other people, but this is the gut feeling I'm getting with this person, Yeah, and you just hope it's not some vain uh, exterior attraction to them, you know, you just, you just hope mm-hmm. you're not being misled by, like, 
hormones or whatever bullshit. Mm-hmm. I absolutely agree. I've been in a similar situation to you. Um, that was actually around the time I was reading The Witcher, which is why I said that uh, uh, that I really connected with Essie in this story because I felt like her at that point in my life. Um, and just to give some antidotes for my family's history, because everybody looks at me like I'm insane when I say I believe it, love at first sight. My grandparents on my dad's side, uh, my they, they met uh, when they were 20-something. Uh, can't remember the exact ages. My grandfather asked my grandmother out on a date. They went out. At the restaurant, my grandfather proposes to her. That same date? Yep. First date, wow. pro- instant proposal. They have been together and happy ever since. My dad was born out of that, and thus I was born. Gosh. And additionally, uh, my parents, my dad was uh, mowing lawn for money. And he uh, knocks on my grandmother's door, my uh, my mom's mom, uh, my mom answers. Uh, teenagers at this point, they were like 15. Uh, he talks with her for a bit. She calls over her mother. Negotiation happens. He ends up mowing the lawn. He gets home. He tells his mother, my grandmother, I just met the woman I'm going to marry. Uh, skip ahead five years. They're married. Skip ahead additional four years. My mom's pregnant with me. Skip ahead how many years it's been since then. And uh, I'm they're perfectly happy. Uh, I exist. You know? So mm. there's just this deal where I have to believe in love at first sight because I'm the product of it. Uh, and it, you know, love at first sight is a difficult concept to wrap your head around. And for some people, like Claudia, with, you know, I won't get into her personal stuff, but she has a troubled family life, that it's understandable where that mentality doesn't really make sense to her. Mm. But for me, it makes perfect sense. Um, And there's a lot going on there under the surface. You know, it is, love is inherently just a biochemical reaction in your brain. So, like, it is is a very complex thing that you can't really pinpoint down, but it really is dependent on the person's perspective and the life they've lived, whether they believe in it. And um, I know for a fact that Yennefer is based on Sapkowski's own wife. So I, I I think it is safe to assume that he, too, believes in love at first sight. Uh, just from the stories he's written and the 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 love story between Geralt and Yen and how that develops over time, uh, and so, like, you know, I just wanted to get your perspective on it because it is, it's something that um, is old fashioned and most people don't understand, and so it's uh, it's weird for me discussing these kind of things when like I firmly believe in it, but other people don't. So it, it it's interesting to see that you're you, you're you're kind of in between where you believe in it but you don't. Yeah, find there's that's what I was gonna a... say. I'm very much in between, I guess, both mm-hmm. yours and Claudia's perspectives. In that, um, again, I'm gonna get more personal here. <laughs> My parents have divorced recently, and you know. God knows it was a long time coming, but even then, oh, everything after. Yeah. But a part of me wants to be, I guess, a hopeless romantic. So I'm stuck between that ideal dream state of yearning for, for love and all that. And then the, the other half is firmly, you know, stuck in between the, the drama of, of, uh, of a failed marriage. You know, mm-hmm. you know that's that's how the world it works. Sometimes there are some really beautiful stories like your ones, and then mm-hmm. the other ones where it's it it sometimes it starts off beautiful and it corrupts over time, or maybe it started off with all the red flags and they just went on anyways. You know, I mm-hmm. I wasn't there, so I can't say for certain what my parents were like. Um, but I guess it's just one of those blind avenues you gotta have hope to go down. Mm-hmm. Uh, it. Um, I made I made mention of this in the Road with No Return. Um, the Road with No Return was a, a love story. 
And it's a story that, hence the title, that love is the is, is the road with no return, that there is no going back once you set on that road. Um, the sign points you forward, and you got to go forward. There's on, that's the only way you can go. And it can splinter off, you know, there could be a side trail here and there uh, with difficulties and stuff, but it is a straight line. And within that, um, you know, there, there's, there's this idea that love makes you do crazy, stupid stuff. Uh, and, um, you know, for some people, that's the case. For other people, it's not. It, it's really, it, it, it's a personal thing. But um, I, I, I do think that uh, we, we take, I think in the modern day, we take love as sort of a thing, uh, we, we take it for granted as a thing you build over time. Uh, but, like, there is something to be said, not only love at first sight, but blood bonds. We, you know, are insanely connected to our family in some way because we're blood related to them. And you can't help but feel something for them, you know, even if you're estranged from your family, you still have that inner care for your family. Um, and so there, there's something to be said about, there's like some, that love is more uh, ethereal in a way, um, uh, almost like a, like, like a, sort of a, a binding magical force, but it, you know, it's not, but it is, that kind of thing. It's really hard to describe. Otherwise, I would be able to. Yeah, I get right you. Now. Yeah, that's what I get. Um, so the the tragedy of Essie David and Geralt of Rivia is one that I can't forget. Sticks with me. Um, and we talk about how Geralt was called out on uh, his hypocrisy in Shard of Ice, and sort of has to deal with it. Um, but. Essie said of the story of the unrequited love aspect. There is tying into one of my uh, previous episodes I did um, when I was covering Babylon 5. One of the key themes of B5 is that all love is unrequited. That no one can love you as much as you love them. There is no physical, emotional, possible way that that can work. Um, no matter if you love each other, there is going to be an imbalance. Um, and so, uh, the Essie sort of trying to come to terms with that and struggling, as I said, was very relatable to me. Um, but there is this sense, uh, that she never really got over it. Mm. Uh, she keeps the blue pearl. Uh, the, which she was never parted from. And there's just this sense that even though it's a present from Dandelion, Geralt was the one that handed it to her. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, that this actually fits conveniently. The, uh, the Winter Queen story from A Shard of Ice, you know, uh, got stuck in your rudders and can't remove myself. You know, that type of thing. That we, we wander through life uh, and we make connections with people. And these connections, some can get severed, some remain intact. Uh, but it seems, at least, I, I don't have a whole lot of romance experience. I only have a little bit. But there is this sense that the ties built by love and romance can never fully be cut. Mm -hmm. That there is still something there. Um, and I think there is something to be said about unrequited love. And how uh, one person's feelings cannot be matched by another. There's no possible way that uh, feelings are so unique and personal and internal that, you know, there's no way uh, to really convey just how much you care for someone, even if you try as hard as you can. Which, I mean, it was kind of the point of Shard of Ice, mm -hmm. uh, which is why these short stories are intrinsically thematically connected yeah you could really just cut out eternal flame and you wouldn't miss much you know that's just the, that's just the awkward story stuck in the middle of these two raw emotional powerhouses and then in the middle mm -hmm. of that you've got the story about 
shapeshifters and a stock market and it, it's as you said it's a cute story but it's just an awkward little block in between these two marvelous well-crafted hard-hitting stories mm-hmm. i mean as i said when uh when i recorded my deal uh on eternal flame like it's a fun romp and there is there's an argument to be made about levity um you know, uh, J. Michael Straczynski, creator of Babylon 5, and many other things, including uh, your favorite character, Spider-Man. He wrote a lot mm-hmm. of him. Uh, he, you know, he said, there is a, th- uh, when you, y- there's a balance to be had between darkness and light. That if you turn on a light bulb, uh, you know, you turn on a light in a room, it shines on everything. Uh, and uh, there is nothing to uh be exposed because things are already exposed but if you have too much darkness you can't see anything uh and he goes so go as dark as you want but for the love of god tell a joke uh and so the idea is that after the tragedy of shadow vice we needed a laugh uh you know for the love of God, tell a joke. And then we go into a little sacrifice where it's more tragedy and more pain. Like there is an argument to be made. I do think that they work very well in tandem and you don't need eternal flame, but for some people that, uh, that sense of, uh, coming out from under the water of tragedy, you know, coming up to the surface and taking a breath before diving back down is necessary. Um, and so, like, it, 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 it's, it's sort of something that can be, uh, it, it all comes down to personal taste, really, I think. Yeah, that's valid. I did view, I did tell you this at the time, I viewed the story of Tunnel Flame as a kind of fun post-breakup, and that's Geralt, you know, finding his best friend, and they're gonna go on this, you know, little side quest to get his mind of things. And yeah. as you say, from that, from that thematic point of view, it does, it does work. It's a nice sense of levity. And to the story's credit, um, a little sacrifice, there is some really funny stuff in here yes. that, I, that I appreciate a lot more. My second read through, like I got to pay more attention to the to the opening bits, you know, of, of Geralt just stuck in this little fishing town. There's a wedding going on. They're poor people, but they're pretending that they're the, these big shots by hiring, you know, bards and all this wonderful banquet stuff. You honor me with you honor. <laughs> yeah, and I feel honored that you honor. <laughs> yeah, Dandelion's all offended. He's second billing. It's great stuff. Yeah. Um, and there's also this very minor detail that I, I quite love. It's just uh, Gal is once again stuck in that position where he's feeling awkward around all these people, and but then there's this old man who just graciously gives him his spot at a table, and when Gal struggles to find food, that old man gives him a plate and he's not doing it out of like fear or anything he's just doing it out of general kindness and in return get out like does the uh tries to be polite by listening to the old man's crazy stories yeah. and it's this little detail but what i love is just added like a nice character to to the setting and in a way it kind of predicts the uh foreshadows what comes in a story that in a way Geralt really is a normal person you know he in the past, he's just been around all these awful people who just shit on him because of he's a witcher or they get, you know, threatened by how big and strong he is. But in real, you know, human settings like this, there's just a kind, if slightly mad, you know, boring old man who sees a person standing alone and he offers him food. And I think that's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, it's rare to have, um, you know, a, a moment because... In The Witcher is often described, I see, in a lot of dark fantasy. You know, Game of Thrones, everything shit, blah, 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 life is horrible. There is that aspect to The Witcher, but also underneath the surface, there is the idea of simple human kindness. Mm-hmm. That even in the darkest pit of misery, there's a good person somewhere. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And that there, you know, uh, it's all a matter of perspective. And if whether you want to wallow in that misery and that tragedy, or if you're going to pick your head back up and try and move on. 
Um, and so for me, Witcher is simultaneously a dark fantasy story as well as uh, a fun, uh, you know, lighthearted high fantasy. I think it, it it finds a nice middle ground and a balance of tones that um, has, you know, the, the art of the balance has been lost i think in recent years if you look at a lot if you look at a lot of modern work it's either pure camp or it's pure dark it's very rare you find something that is able to uh in the modern day anyway really find a balance between that um there's there's a handful of stuff it's not like the skill is gone completely but it is it is something that i i noticed especially when i was in uni I noticed there was like this big culture war over dark and serious or light and funny. I'm like, there's a there's a balance to be maintained there. You go too far one direction, you know, as JMS says, you turn on the light, there's nothing to be exposed because everything's seen. If you may, if you turn off the light, you can't see. You got to dim it, you know? Yeah. And for those reasons that I'm always going to be more of a defender for Lord of the Rings than Game of Thrones. You know, I never got into Game of Thrones at the time when it was this massive hit. But from what I did see of it, it just didn't appeal to me. It was too nihilistic. Uh, mm. And, you know, if, if that's people's things, that's fantastic. But for me, what you're talking about is what I love those, you know, that Peter Jackson trilogy. There's this fantastic blend of darkness and of light and of these simple, you know, people uh, with no power or, you know, like in Aragon's case, are connected to power but fear using it because of some, because of a past misdeed and legacy. It's them trying to, mm make their way in this world for caring about each other and it's i'm yeah. getting that sense the deeper i go in with the witcher series like i absolutely adore the ending of this story little sacrifice because it sees you know free free people free friends in this vile world by a campfire there's a hungry werewolf in any other story there'd be some massive fights with the werewolf i'm sure that's what a netflix show would do but in this story <laughs> the werewolf it hears Dandelion's music, it recognizes him somehow, it stays a while and then it walks away and that's such a different, dreamlike, beautiful way to end the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, there's, it's this weird thing where the games and the show to a certain extent has uh, sort of molded people to think that that, uh, that Witcher is more like Game of Thrones style darkness. Mm. Um, and I don't mind Game of Thrones. I think it has problems here and there. And I'm not a big fan of George R. R. Martin's writing style. So the books for me aren't that great. But there is merit to the way he writes things and to what he's trying to say. Uh, but, uh, you know, to quote JMS again, go as dark as you want, but for the love of God, mm. tell a joke. Uh, and so. The Wisher matches more of my sensibilities, where, yeah, the world around us is burning and falling apart, and there's a lot of shit going on, but if you could find some people to care about, find a family, then life might just be worth it. Um, and to me, that is the core of The Witcher, especially into the saga. It's about Geralt and Yennefer and Ciri sort of thrashing out and trying to survive a world that has no interest in them, has complete indifference to their existence, uh, and wants nothing more to see them buried six feet under, just so they can live together and be happy. And I think that, to me, is the emotional core of Witcher, is that, yeah, the world is crap, and there's not much you can do about it, but if you can find someone to care about, maybe maybe living is Mm -hmm. good. You know, and uh, that the, the you know that really plays well into the unrequited love theme that runs throughout this uh the short story is that finding someone isn't easy, uh and uh that it it, it it's a skill and it, it you know it requires a give and take hence the name a little sacrifice. Um. So, w- what was your take on um w- one of the big things I glom onto when I read this is uh the parallels between the uh the Sheenaz story, the Little Mermaid retelling, mm. and uh the Essie Davin stuff. 
of how it requires a little sacrifice that there there's a give and a take to every relationship both romantically and platonically uh there's even a give and take with uh the Geralt dandelion relationship even though it's just purely a friendship mm-hmm. um that uh you can't just be solely reliant on one person you also have to be able to give in and do, and do things for that other person that you have to compromise you have to present a united front and one thing that always uh, comes to me when I think about that is a traditional wedding. Uh, the couple, you know, traditional, at least uh, Western Christian wedding, is the couple uh, lights com- uh, these candles together, and the last candle they light, they light with both both their candles together. Uh, and there's this implication in a symbology that two people have been on a journey by themselves and now that they are married they have become one person that they have become the couple the united front uh and so um how do you think that that theme of uh, of that relationship requires a give and a take is handled throughout this and what it and how we it's sort of preparing the reader and saying love requires uh not only sacrifice but it requires you to um put in the effort that's a deep one so to me what i found interesting is that the the king and the mermaid subplot is treated as more of a dra- uh, backdrop to the story this you know Mm-hmm. Uh, quirky take on the Little Mermaid, while we really, while the main attention is on Geralt and Essie. But the fact is, you know, from the king's perspective, this is his story. You know, he he's the star of, the, of his own little show, uh, and he, mm. he to him, Geralt is just some brute who's messing up as a negotiator. Uh, and it's rather interesting having that counterbalance between the two because i view the king as this rather selfish you know little twerp who who's too ignorant to learn about this you know this mermaid who can't you can't even talk to properly to join his culture for her to give up everything and she in return is like oh how you know he's got two little spindly legs you know he he how about he cuts those off and join me in the river in in the lake Mm-hmm. Uh, I I just love when Geralt points out, you know, he can't breathe underwater, right? <laughs> yeah, and she's like, despicable, despicable. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I want to give a massive shout out to Peter Kenning, the voice actor for the audio yeah. dub. Well, not audio dub, the audio book, because he went mm-hmm. above and beyond in doing that story, and that he gave this lovely sing song voice to the mermaid and Geralt when yep. they speak to each other. It's very funny, but at the same time, it's this wonderful um, little detail that really just brings it to life more. Uh, mm-hmm. And it just, it, just, it just cracks me up. I mean, he, he's, he's still doing a Geralt voice and doing that uh, sing song voice on top of it. That's some pretty damn good skill. <laughs> so massive props yeah. to him for that. Uh, but returning to your question, uh, and I'm sorry if I'm all over the place with this one because it's a very deep question, and I could never really get a proper grip on what I was supposed to feel with the the whole king and mermaid one. Because when you get to the ending, mm-hmm. you know she just rocks up to the palace. She's in human form, and you're like, oh, did, did I miss something? Am I an idiot? Did I misinterpret this? So it's hard for me to get into. I guess in the end, she was, you know, she chose to make the massive sacrifice. And maybe the point is you're left wondering if she was the selfless one while he was the selfish. I hope that came across right. I hope it's said the right way around. To me, Geralt and Essie are the ones who. I think Geralt realizes in the end that he can't be selfish about this. You know, he can't sacrifice mm-hmm. this his integrity for Essie because he still loves Yennefer. He realizes it won't be faithful to Essie, it won't be faithful to him. A part of his brain is probably wanting to get back to Yennefer, so he knows it would disrespect her if he were to commit to this sham of a relationship with Essie. Mm-hmm. I, I think the, 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 the point, uh, the, the, the way I was view it, is that basically... 
Shinaz and the king were sort of just, you know, uh, in a uh, inside of a stalemate. Mm. Um, they they didn't want to give anything up, and I I think that's a that's a point that I see a lot because I come from a mixed religion household. And as much as the fairy tale get together my parents had, they did have struggles because of the differences in their culture, the differences in the religion, um, and um, and just the push and pull between what's expected of a couple and what they want. You know, we live in the South. Uh, we live in Oklahoma. It is expected you have a kid very early. Not only do you have a kid very early, but you should probably have multiples. My mom only wanted one kid. My dad wanted two. And so there was this push and pull between them before they settled on just having me and being done with it. But there was also contentions with their, the different cultures, one a Southern Baptist Christian, the other, uh, uh, you know, Jewish, and uh, there's uh, and the differences in the religion. And so the, the thing is, is that uh, when it comes to being a couple comes to being a married person or what have you any kind of relationship even just friendship there has to be a point where you can't put up a wall and says you know and plant yourself like a tree and say you move eventually you're going to have to give something up make a compromise to keep that relationship going whether it's platonic or romantic uh that there is just a point where you can't, uh, you know, uh, you can't just sit by, uh, and sit there and let them, you know, control everything, and you can't control anything either. There has to be an agreed-upon compromise, a peace treaty, for lack of a better term. Um, and so the the point is is that both Shinaz and the king are being completely selfish, just like, come join my culture, blah, blah, blah. You know, you can join me on land, you can join me under the water. Uh, and it's this whole ridiculous tirade. And if they ever sat down to really think about it and discuss it, uh, they could have reached a compromise. In the end, it took Shinaz being the better person to go, I, my love for you means more to me than my own selfish need to remain in the water. So I'm going to get out, I'm going to get human legs, and we're going to uh, get married, and we're going to do this, and we're going to figure it out together. Uh, and it's about that you can't just wander into a marriage and think that you're, uh, you know, you are two separate people. Uh, once you're married, you are the same person in a way you are the couple and you have to act like that you have to be willing to set aside your own biases your own wants your own needs for the uh the, for the greater whole um hence a little sacrifice mm -hmm. um and so that that to me is what the purpose of the little mermaid retelling was uh and also we get to see it work for Sheen as in the king, but for Essie and Geralt, it can't work because Geralt can't make that decision. He doesn't want to, and he doesn't know how to. And the entire reason the Yennefer situation happened in Shard of Ice is because he wasn't willing to make the sacrifice to begin with and finally say, I love you. So this is him on the other end going, oh. Oh. <laughs> Uh, and, and sort of getting that slap in the face and the the drag down from his complacency that he desperately needed. Um, and so it's it's about relationships is a two man team. It, you know, it, you can't just wander into it expecting to still remain yourself. There there are always is sacrifices. There's always compromises. Um, and. I know, like I said, when I was comparing to the Western Christian uh, wedding, which is what I normally see when I go to weddings, because I come from, oh, you know, a Western country, the U.S., and in a predominantly Christian state, Oklahoma, but there are various other marriage ceremonies, but all of them revolve around uh, getting uh, the, that these two souls are now one. 
uh, like the uh, the Hindi marriage of uh, the uh, the wrapping of the ribbon around the hands of both partners, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, like that, that is basically the lighting of the candle in the Christian marriage ceremony, that these two people are now one. And that that comes with all the problems and all the joy there within. Uh, and so that's that's what I think he's trying to say. And I think that is ultimately a very important lesson to learn in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, it, but he also shows that it can have its downsides. Um, so there, there's always a give and a take. Did you have any questions for me? Yeah, so... I take it it's ambiguous whether Shinaz and the mayor's relationship will be a successful one. What are your personal views on it? Do you think it would work out or is it ultimately doomed to failure as the king, uh, sorry, the mayor wasn't the one who, who made that sacrifice? Um, I think, I'm, I'm trying to remember if they're ever brought up again because I remember Sedaris is brought up again. Um, but uh, I think it is a complicated thing. Um there, I think it's best left ambiguous. Um, there is this thing where they could eventually reach a compromise where they spend X amount of time on the surface, X amount of time underwater, if they can find a way for him to breathe. But ultimately, the thing with that compromise is that she was the only one that could compromise. He can't breathe underwater. She can breathe on land. Um, she wanted to remain in the water, he wanted to remain on land, both of them were in the wrong, um, but what, something had to give, you know? And, uh, there's, there's no way to tell if it would work long term. (laughs) For the short term, I'm sure it did work. Um, but the, you know, uh, it's a matter of if they're very stubborn natures, would continue onwards. Um, like, she was the better person by going, okay, fuck it. My love for you means more to me than my pride, so I'm going to sacrifice my tail to grow legs. Um, but he's also going to have to compromise at some point, and the question is whether he's willing to or not. She proved to be the better person. Who knows uh, if he will or not. So I think it's best left ambiguous, but there is a chance there that it worked, and there's a chance it didn't. Mm. So once again, it does go back into the theme. The series is having a running trend off the, you know, the monster or the abnormal, you know, entity is the more noble one, you know, who acts more human than the actual humans. Uh, mm-hmm. So yeah, I've, now you've explained it more to me that my dumb monkey brain can understand it better. I can see how that's such a strong thing to do to make it uh, ambiguous and a better contrast to Geralt and Essie. You've mentioned in the past uh, regarding the Netflix series, how they seem to be location jumping. Uh, you certainly know more about the, the location, you know, the cities and the towns of the Witcher world more than I do. Do you think it would be best for, uh, to have a firmly thick map that the show and the, you know, the books stick with? Um, that's a complicated thing because maps are very common in fantasy, you know, because of uh, J.R. Tolkien and his insane world building uh, sort of started that and it's just become a thing we do now. Um, I hardly ever look at maps unless it's like super important. Um, with The Witcher, there was no official map. Um, there was one that Sukowski approved of, it was a fan-made one, and that has, that's the one that's been taken as canon for decades Mm -hmm. now, uh, and then Netflix made their own basing it off that one. So there's an official Netflix Witcher map. Is it fairly similar to the fan-made one? Yes, it's nearly identical with just a little bit of difference. So basically, a fan years ago did all the work that Netflix did. It's just doing, yeah. just chasing over, copying someone else's homework. I, I mean, to be fair, that's very common nowadays. Gail Simone, yeah. I saw she she was talking about a deal where um, in the modern day, there's no real reason to have a long archived series Bible anymore because the fans will just make a wiki. <laughs> uh, and so most 
TV shows or long-running TV shows or whatever don't have a series Bible outside of the pilot uh, because once it's aired and out there, the fans will do all the work for them. Uh, so that's that's not too uncommon. But um, there is a really, really nice map or, uh, that uh, I found on Reddit once that I use because I've ran a few D&D games uh, in the Witcher world. So I use that that's map. Awesome. Yeah, and that's the that's that's the map, the fan made map that Sapkowski approved of, with a couple of added stuff to it, uh, and uh, that's for the most part the one Netflix uses. Um, to me, it doesn't really matter as long as you remain consistent. If you tell me something is you know X amount of right away from blank, I expect you to hold to that. Um, and so if you establish, just to give an example from the show, if you establish that Caramorin lies in the mountains of Cadwin, and you establish that Cadwin is a couple countries removed from Sintra, if you have characters that get on a horse and ride from Sintra to Caramorin, I expect it to take a while and not five minutes. Um, and so... You know, the, you just need to remain consistent. Oxenfurt is in Tamaria. Novigrad is a free state, but it's within the confines of Redania. These little aspects of world building need to remain consistent and uh, need to be, uh, even if we don't have a map, there needs to be a sense of understanding that it takes X amount of time or whatever, even if it's just a dialogue, there needs to be some sort of consistency there. Sukowski never really gave us a map. Um, I think he had a map for his own purposes, because if you go back and look, he remains consistent with his own world building, even though there's no map. Uh, and the approved fan trans or the, the, the approved fan map uh, matches up with what he does as well. So uh, one would assume it's relatively close to that, even if he didn't disclose it. I don't think it's necessary. Um, for me, what what I love about Witcher is that it's a micro-scale story. There, in, in writing, you have macro-scale and micro-scale. Macro is big things, big events, big everything. Um, and so something like Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones is a macro-scale story. You know, it's about the history of this world, the history of these characters, and uh, the relationship there within. Uh, and with you, when there's a big battle, you're going to have it described to you. Um, in The Witcher, everything's more micro-scale. It's very intimately focused on these three characters and their lives. Uh, and while the outside, of the wor uh, outside world is talked about, and there's some major events that happen... They are all told in the relation to these three characters and how it affects them and their journey. Yeah, I definitely noticed that with something more where mm. you know there's this massive war going on, Simpsons fell, but Geralt doesn't really find out all about this until he bumps into Dandelion. And we found out through Dandelion, he talks about how this is the end of everything, this is war about destruction, and Geralt's like, well, wars happen, it's, it's ne wars don't... Mm -hmm destroy everything it's just about ownership so it's this nice little counterbalance between uh, dandelion and Geralt you know dandelion's going very poetic about the vast destruction of you know this army feels like they come from another world and Geralt's trying to be more you know realistic about it like oh this is just this is mm -hmm. this isn't that big uh, and it's interesting to me because I feel like if they met in the middle they would get the right summary of what's going on that this is indeed mm -hmm. way bigger than anything that's happened before but it does ultimately boil down to the same thing about ownership yep uh and some people like the macro scale and some people like the macro scale and it's all just personal preference for me uh big epic fantasy like game of thrones and lord of the rings i could enjoy from time to time mm. but there, there comes a point where it's a bunch of proper nouns being spouted at me and a bunch of world building and i'm like where where's the character i can really love um and it kind of gets lost in in there's this interesting stuff to be done uh but i treat witcher much like 
Star Trek treats its world. Star Trek has never cared about world building. It's never cared about mostly consistency. It, it maintains consistency within its own series, usually, and that's it. Um, it's much more concerned with the morality plays and the characters. And for me, that's what I'm interested in. So, uh, the, mac the, the, the micro scale of Witcher, where there's this great war and all this shit going down, but for the most part, that's removed from Geralt, Yennefer, and Ciri as they're going about what they're doing. To me, I enjoy that kind of storytelling far more. Um, as long as you maintain a level of consistency with your world, there's not a problem. Which is why, you know, Yennefer and Geralt magically going from Sintra to Kermorin, which is a ride that would take at least three weeks, at maximum speed and pretending like they haven't talked at all it's ridiculous to me and hard for me to really deal with you know yeah. or or just the simple fact that Yarpin's caravan is near Oxenfurt in Tamaria but they're working for Hinsult the king of Cadwin so why are they in Tamaria um and it's it's this level of inconsistency that Sukowski doesn't have because he, despite not giving us a map, unlike what Netflix did, which did give us a map, maintains consistency even though there, there's no way to judge him on it. You're just going based on word of mouth that he's maintaining consistency, and yet people who give an actual official map can't maintain consistency. And I find that very strange. Mm. Um, so I'm not, a, I'm, not, I'm not opposed to having a map. Do I need one? No, not really. But if if Sapkowski came down and said, here's the map I drew in 1986, I'd go, cool. <laughs> you know? The, it, it's not something I need, but it's something that would be cool. And I have the fan maps that he approves of, so, like, to me, that's what the continent looks like. Um, And so there's there's no need for anything else. Any other questions? Yeah, so something I wish to clarify is what exactly happens to the underwater city of, I hope I pronounced this right, uh, Weiss? I mean, it's just a single word. I don't know how yes. Yes. Uh, yes. So do you, know, do you know about the legend of Yes? No. It's a real legend. Oh, is it? I just assumed it was a yeah. subversion of Atlantis. Uh, it is Atlantis, but it is, it's French. It's a mythical city on the coast of Brittany. Uh, but it was later swallowed by the ocean. Um, so that's a real-world myth. Uh, and that's... Uh, Sapkowski does that all the time, and you, it will make sense later in the series. Actually, well, I can just go ahead and spoil it, because the, the, the series is kind of touched on it. The Witcher exists in a multiverse, and there is many worlds, many spheres, uh, and one of those is ours. Um, and... Um, some uh, and in some faraway sphere, humans uh, succumbed to an ice age and managed to hitch a ride among something that I won't spoil to another world, which is this world. Uh, and so part of our culture is in this fantasy culture. <laughs> Um, and that you'll notice those in, inaccuracies or how people, some people talk like they're from the Middle Ages and some people talk like they're from the 20th century. Uh, you know, there, there's this amalgamation of fake and real in this world because ultimately these humans do come from another world that was very much like ours, um, but a little bit earlier in its development. Uh, and I will say that at one point, Siri goes and visits our very real world. She ends up in uh, she ends up uh, in medieval Poland, and then 20th century Scotland. I would not I would not expect that, but that sounds very interesting. <laughs> yeah, uh, and it gets more interesting. I won't spoil the rest of her journeys through our world, but it, it's very it's very interesting to watch her reactions to what we take as history. Uh, for her, it's just some weird ass thing from another <laughs> world. Uh, but yeah, this... his dark material vibes with the whole world jumping and your know, characters going from this fantasy world into our world. Yeah, I've never read those books, but I've no yeah, of them. I love so, them. A lot, yeah. yeah. Um. So the 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 city of Yis, um, 
the basically the original legend if memory serves is that uh he was sunk because of sin and like the devil had possessed people and all the citizens that drowned with it turned into fish people uh and so that's what he's playing with uh whether whether it was actually there or not is for anyone to guess and i'd say it's best left uh unsolved those kind of uh weird ass mysteries like uh Sodom and Gomorrah, or uh, Iram of the Pillars, or Atlantis, you know, it's best left to the imagination what happened. Does the series itself pick up um, the version of yeast that Geralt and Dandelion visit? Because it felt like, you know, there was, I got the sense that uh, you know, the mayor and the town were getting up for war, and then the mermaid showed up, and it just felt very unresolved. So I was wondering if, uh, if that was deliberate, if that's something that's picked up in the future of the series, or... As you say, it's just left as this, you know, tiny part of a mist of a bigger mystery. Well, this is complicated by the game. So yes and no. No, we won't talk about this anymore in the books because, uh, you know, the 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 mermaid Shinaz basically helped prevent a war from happening, and they, everybody agreed. The water remains to them. We remain here on land. Uh, the games in the first Witcher game from 2007, uh, you end up meeting the uh, Lady of the Lake, who is different from the Lady of the Lake that appears in the novels. Gets really confusing. Uh, and uh, she is dealing with a war that's about to pop up between a uh, small farming village and the Lost City of Yis. Uh, and so you have to deal with that, and it gets into Cthulhu a little bit. Uh, he always pops up everywhere. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, the, the Cthulhu, the old god in Cthulhu myth that, uh, is from the sea. I forget his name. Uh, but he shows up. He begins with a D. Dagon! Dagon. Uh, he shows up. I won't get into it because it's, it, it, it's interesting, but it's very separate from the story. It's implied that the city moves around in the ocean, that it's not in one place, and that this may be the same one uh, that uh, Geralt encountered. But in the games, Geralt has amnesia, so he doesn't remember it. However, Shinaz is name-dropped in that, in that quest. There's a, a, the lady like mentions of a mermaid that encountered Geralt once, many years ago. So... No, the books don't touch on it, but the games do. That's good detail on the game developer's part. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff in those games. As much as I give them crap for some of their story choices, uh, there is a lot there because they're meant to be sequels to the books of just pure let's uh, fan fiction-y type, let's pick up where this left off kind of thing. And there's so many nods and stuff. So the games, while they have become popular and separate from the novels you appreciate the games more if you've read them because you notice so much more any anything else i think i'm good for now all right um i was really glad that this was the short story that got you uh into the books and i hope you continue on your journey through the books uh and it's just one of my favorites so i'm really glad that you enjoyed it as much as i did uh, so thank you for coming uh, coming on to the show. I think the next time you're going to be on is Sword of Destiny, the actual Sword of Destiny, not the <laughs> selection as a whole. Um, and uh, we get introduced to Siri there. And uh, for uh, the the listening audience, me and him discussed um, that it would be interesting to talk more uh, on a on a higher level beyond the Sword of Destiny on the show itself. Now that he's worked his way through the short stories, uh, to talk about the differences and on the the wider view of the the show now that he's experienced uh, all the short stories and especially how they did sort of destiny, really strangely in that show. Uh, so uh, we will talk about Netflix more there as well as just in general the the story that introduces us to our second main character. Uh, so, uh, I look forward to, uh, meeting the wonderful child of the Elderblood Siri with you, uh, and see you next time. Bye. Bye.